Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya. Um, the question I've been asked, uh, um, the first question I've been asked to answer today is related to why this entire world is as unreal as a dream. Why Bhagavan teaches us that this entire world is un as unreal as a dream and how are we to understand this? That is what the, the um, I will first read the question. It's quite a long one. I will first read it and then um, and then answer it. My question is related to the apparent reality of the world as experienced in our waking state. Bhagavan's teachings say that our so-called reality is in fact a dream projected by ourselves. From an individual, from an intellectual level, I can relate to this when I look at the world and its inhabitants as being a collective of apparent individual entities, whereas in fact it's the one, namely Brahman, playing out the script we call life and erroneously take to be something happening to us as an individual. Also, I think to understand the role the ego plays in this through our identification with the body, mistakenly making us believe to be one among many. Uh, in all multiplicity that appears to be, where I seem to get stuck in my understanding is how literally we should take life to be a dream and what uh, can be called real in the apparent dreamlike individual life. And then various options are given. Is it that the sense of individuality by definition is dualistic and therefore unreal, thus a dream? For instance, my neighbor will have a slightly different viewing point in looking at the world since his locality is slightly different. When my neighbor is uh, merely a dream character by projected by me, he actually doesn't exist at all, along with all wars, diseases, disease, the seasons, bodies, plants, volcanic eruptions, planets, entities, etc., etc. Can we conclude that these do not actually exist, hence making all interpersonal dynamics in our lives unreal as well? Or should we take the dreamlike waking state in a more metaphorical sense so that the multiplicity of bodies seemingly exists because of the identification with our bodies and therefore mistakenly experienced as individuals forming a multiplicity of realities limited in their nature therefore arbitrary and impossible to be taken for real or is it to be taken as a dream due to the impermanent nature of the world we see as defined in Advaita Vedanta as things that are changing, perceived, and impermanent are, are unreal? Or is it a, a, or a dream because of the fact that we mistakenly make up any narrative or worldview we like, creating the world as a projection made up by our ever restlessly outgoing mind? or a dream in the sense that all is predestined uh, and we erroneously believe ourselves to be the doer or actor in the projected life we live. This I find rather confusing to comprehend and sometimes difficult to deal with. 
So that is the, the, the question. It's, as, as you can see, it's a rather long, elaborate question, but I'll try and break it down. But before, before answering the question, uh, um, I think it's useful to give some background from Bhagavan's teachings to put all of this in context. Firstly, what Bhagavan, what does Bhagavan mean by when he talks about real and unreal? What why does he say um but what is real is only ourself and everything else is unreal? <laughs> what he means by real is what actually exists. Whatever he what he means by unreal is anything that doesn't actually exist, even if it seems to exist. So according to Bhagavan. The only thing that actually exists is ourself as we actually are. As he says in the first sentence of the seventh paragraph of Nana, Yatatamai Ulladu Apmasarupamandre. That means what actually exists is only Apmasarupa. Apmasarupa means uh, the real nature of oneself. In other words, ourself as we actually are. So what we actually are alone is what actually exists. Everything else, as he goes on to say in that paragraph, the, the world, soul, and God are just karpane, they're just fabrications. Uh, in that, in the one thing that actually exists, like uh, silver seen in, in a shell. It, it, in a shell, it may appear that there is, it has a silver lining, but that silver lining is just an appearance. It has no reality whatsoever. There's no silver at all in the shell. Likewise, Bhagavan says the entire appearance of world, soul, and God is as unreal as the silver in a shell. They all appear simultaneously and disappear simultaneously. What actually exists is only ourself. So, why does Bhagavan say that what actually exists is only ourself? There is a reason for this. That is, if something, as Bhagavan often used to say, if something exists at one time and not at another time, it doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist. There is a reason for this. It, it, we, we can understand this. Obviously, existence is not a property, is not a, a, a quality or a property, but we can understand it using a, a a property as an as an analogy. If certain things in this world are intrinsically hot, like fire is intrinsically hot, other things are hot but not intrinsically hot. So sometimes they may be hot, sometimes they may not be hot. So if something is not intrinsically hot, it derives its heat from some other source. So for example, if we um, if we cook a pot of rice, when the freshly cooked rice will be hot, but rice isn't inherent isn't intrinsically hot. It, it has gained that heat from somewhere. So the rice has gained the heat from the boiling water, and water also is not intrinsically hot. So it's gained its heat from some other source from the, from the hot pan. And the pan isn't intrinsically hot, it's, uh, it's derived its heat from fire. Fire is intrinsically hot, because whenever you have fire, it is hot. So anything that is not 
intrinsically hot must derive its heat from some other source. Likewise with existence, anything that is not permanently existent is not intrinsically existent. It gains existence and it loses existence. So since it gains and loses its existence, it's not intrinsically existent, so it must derive its existence from some other thing. Again, we can use an analogy here to understand this. Take gold ornaments, for example. Those ornaments are different forms. Those forms do not have any independent existence. They're not intrinsically existent. The same gold, but today is in the form of a bangle, may tomorrow be melted and made into a ring or into part of a necklace or something. So from where do these ornaments derive their existence? They derive their existence from the gold. Relatively speaking, the gold is permanent, the ornaments are impermanent. The ornaments are mere forms. The substance is what is real. Of course, gold isn't an ultimate substance, but relatively speaking, we can say gold is a substance and it, it's, it's permanent. However many times you melt it to make it into different forms, it's permanent. So just like the ornaments derive their existence from gold, their substance, that is, the forms derive their existence from the substance, all phenomena derive their existence from something other than themselves. So from what do all things derive their existence? That is, in our view, there seems to be a world. We see a world out there, it seems to exist. But in whose view does this world seem to exist? As Bhagavan points out, the world, and it, all, this applies to all phenomena, both the, the seemingly physical phenomena of the world and the seemingly mental phenomena of the mind. All uh, seem to exist only in the view of ourself as ego. In waking and dream, we rise as ego and we see the, uh, the appearance of this world. In sleep, we do not rise as ego and hence no world appears. So the world appears or seems to exist only in the view of ourself as ego. So the world derives its semi-existence from the semi-existence of ourself as ego. But even this ego is not intrinsically existent because ego appears in waking and dream, it disappears in sleep. There's no ego at all in sleep, as Bhagavan says. So in the, since ego is, is just a temporary appearance, even ego is not intrinsically existent. So where does ego derive it, from what does ego derive its semi-existence? It derives its semi-existence from the real existence of ourself as we actually are. Ourself as we actually are is what is always shining within us as the fundamental awareness I am. That is what is permanent. That is alone is what actually exists. All things other than this fundamental awareness I am appear and disappear. In other words, they come into to see me existence and they cease to uh, seemingly exist. So they are none of them are real. None of them actually exist. They are mere appearances. So all phenomena 
derive their seeming existence and hence their seeming reality from the seeming existence of ourself as ego. And ego derives its seeming existence from the, the, the real existence of ourself as we actually are. Ego is the, as Bhagavan often explained, ego is the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body. That is, whenever we rise as ego, whether in waking or in dream, we always experience ourselves as I am this body. But this body is not what we actually are. So this awareness, I am this body, is a false awareness. However, though it is a false awareness, it has an element of reality in it. That element of reality is the fundamental awareness I am. Whereas the awareness I am this body is an identification, the awareness I am is our existence. I am, without any um, adjunct, means I exist. So our existence is what is real. Our identity is what is unreal. So uh, I am is real. I am this or I am that is unreal. Um, but without the real existence of ourself as I am, we couldn't be aware of ourselves as I am this or I am that. So ego, the false awareness, I am this or I am that, derives its seeming existence from the real existence of ourself as I am. Um, so this is the first thing to understand. But why Bhagavan says that we alone are real? Because we alone are... Bhagavan often used to say, there are three defining characteristics of what is real. What is real must, um, it must always exist. In other words, it must be permanent, it must be eternal. It also must be unchanging, because if something is changing, it is one thing at one time and another thing at another time. If, um, if uh, a certain piece of gold, one day it may be a ring, the next day it may be a um, it may be a part of a bangle. So since it has since it has undergone change, it is not real. What has undergone change is the form. So the form is unreal. So all forms are constantly changing. Even if they seem to be stable for a while, sooner or later they're going to change. Even the most stable things in this world, um, they may seem to last for thousands of years, but they will eventually uh, change. And even to say they last for a thousand years is assuming that they exist in the absence of, of our awareness of them, which Bhagavan says is a false assumption. Bhagavan says, actually, in sleep, there is no body, no world, nothing. There is only pure being, our own awareness, our own fundamental awareness, I am. So, as, as Bhagavan says, what is real must be eternal, it must be unchanging, and the third and most important thing, it must be self-shining, Swayam Prakasa. What does Bhagavan mean by self-shining? He means that it, um, to shine is, means, is, is, a, is, a, is a metaphorical way of saying it, to be known. When something is known, it shines. Um, 
not not shines literally, but in this in the sense in which the term shiny is known. So what is self-shining must know its own, it, it must know itself by its own light of awareness. It shouldn't depend upon any other thing to know itself. Um, all things other than ego, all phenomena, as Bhagavan says, are jada. That is, they're devoid of awareness. They don't, they don't know their own existence or semi-existence. So none of them are self-shining. Ego seems to be self-shining. It seems to be shining by, by its own light, but it is not actually self-shining because the light by which ego shines is not its own light, but the light of the, of the fundamental awareness I am. Without the fundamental awareness I am, there would be no ego. So ego is not self-shiny. It derives its light, it derives its awareness, but enables it to know itself and to know all other things only from the fundamental awareness I am. So the fundamental awareness I am alone is self-shining. So I am is eternal. I am is unchanging. And I am is self-shining. People say, oh, no, I've undergone so many changes. I was once a small child running around playing, and now I'm an old person. What has changed is the body. What has changed is what we take ourselves to be. But the fundamental awareness, I am, remains unchanging. That is, what we have in common with that little child that was running around uh, so many years ago playing, what we have in common with that is that that, 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 that same awareness, I am, but we felt when we seem to be a child, we feel exactly the same awareness without any change now. Everything else has changed, but our awareness of our own existence, I am, ever remains unchanging. So the, the, the I am is eternal, unchanging, and self-shining. So that alone is real. Nothing else is real. So. All other things that seem to be real derive their semi-reality, uh, their semi-existence from the, from the one real existence, namely ourself as I am. I, I am is sat-chit. Sat means existence, what actually exists. And chit means uh, aware, awareness, the, the pure awareness. So... Sat is both our existence and our awareness. That is, what we actually are is the awareness I am. As Bhagavan said, the first question that Shiva Prakashan Pillai asked Bhagavan was, Nana, who am I? To which Bhagavan replied simply, Arivainan. That means awareness alone is I. And then Shiva Prakashan Pillai asked, what is the nature of that awareness? Arivin Sarupam Edu, and Bhagavan replied, Satchidananda. So what we actually are is only Satchidananda. Sat means pure being, Chit means pure awareness, Ananda means pure happiness. These are not three things. These are, these are three descriptions of one and the same thing, namely our own real nature. That is, we are we ourselves for what actually exists. We ourselves is what is actually aware, the pure awareness. And happiness is the very nature of ourself as we actually are. So we ourselves are happiness. Um, 
so um, that's the first thing to understand, what Bhagavan means by real. And by this definition, it is clear that ego is not real. Ego is the subject. All other things are objects known by ego. So since the subject is not real, the objects known by it are equally unreal. So that gives some background to it. So Bhagavan says that this, but, but what we now experience as the waking state is actually just another dream. It is what we are now experiencing is in no way any more real than what we experience in a dream. In a dream, while we are dreaming, but everything that we experience in the dream seems to us to be real. Why is that? Because, as Bhagavan said, the only thing that is actually real is ourself. But when we are dreaming, we take ourselves to be a person in that dream. We take ourselves to be a body in that dream. Since we are real, if that body is ourself, then that body is real. So because the body seems to be ourself, it seems to be real. But that body is just a small part of, or it seems to be just a small part of a vast universe, a dream universe. Since the, since the body seems to be real, therefore, the entire uh, universe seems to be real, because the body cannot be real and the rest of the world be unreal. So, so long as we are dreaming, whatever we are experiencing in the dream seems to us to be real. But as soon as we wake up from a dream, we immediately recognize, oh, it wasn't real, it was just a dream. How are we able to recognize that? It's not only, it's not only um, us as adults that are able to recognize that, even as a child, if we have, as a small child, if we have a frightening dream, we'll be terrified. But when we wake up from a dream, we immediately recognize it was unreal. The fear may continue for a little while because of uh, the, the, our fertile imagination as a child, but we, we recognize what we experienced in that dream was unreal. How are we able to recognize that so naturally and spontaneously and instantly? Because why did the world, the dream seem real so long as we're dreaming? Because we take ourselves to be a dream body. Because we take ourselves to be a dream body, that dream body seems to be real, and hence the whole world seems to be real. As soon as we wake up, that as soon as we leave that dream and come to this dream, our identification with the dream body is severed. We no longer experience that dream body as ourself. Since we no longer experience it as ourself, it no longer seems to be real. So as soon as we wake up from uh, a dream, we recognize everything that we experienced in a dream was unreal. It was just a dream. But so long as we were experiencing it, so long as we were dreaming, it all seemed very real. So Bhagavan says this waking state is no more real than a dream state. In this state also, we experience ourselves as I am this body. Because we experience ourselves as I am this body, this body seems to be real. Because this body seems to be real, the whole world seems to be real, because this body is just a small part of the world. That is why whatever state we are currently experiencing, 
always seems to be uh, to us to be real because we cannot experience any state of waking or dream without it experiencing ourselves as a person within that dream this is very important to understand because <clears throat> while we are dreaming we 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 meet and talk with many other people um as this person who asked this question says, they they are all all those other people are unreal. Yes, all those other people are unreal. But not only are those other people are unreal, equally unreal is the person we take ourselves to be. That is, who is the dreamer? The dreamer is not the person we take ourselves to be in a dream. The dreamer is ego. So the whole dream appears only in the view of ego. But as ego, we always experience ourselves as I am this body, I am this person. So because we experience ourselves as a person in the dream, that person seems to be aware. We, uh, because we, that person seems to be ourself. But that person is not the dreamer. The dreamer, but that person is a part of a dream. It is something that is dreamt. The dreamer is ego. So this is important to understand because we need to distinguish ourself as ego from whatever we as ego take ourselves to be. That is, whenever we rise as ego, we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body. And when Bhagavan talks, says ego is what is aware of itself as I am this body, what he means by body is not just the physical form of a body. As he says in verse 5 of Uludunapadu, Udul Pancha Koza Urum, the body is a form composed of five sheaves. The five sheaves are the, this, the physical form of a body, the so called Anamaya Kosha, the, the, the sheep that is composed of food. Then the life that animates this body, which is called pranamaya kosha, the, the sheath composed of life or prana. And the manamaya kosha, the, the sheath composed of mind. Here, mind is used in this, it is used to refer to the grosser aspects of the mind, that is the um, perception, memory, um, thoughts, feelings, emotions, and so on. These are all manamaya kosha. Subtler than the manamaya kosha is the vijnanamaya kosha, the intellect, the buddhi. Um, that, uh, that is the, the judging, discriminating, reasoning um, aspect of the mind. Subtler than that is the anandamaya kosha, which is uh, what is otherwise called chittam, the will. Um, that that is what consists. That is the totality of all our vasanas, all our inclinations, and the vasanas are the seeds that give rise to the likes, dislikes, desires, and so on. So the the likes, dislikes, desires, and so on are the will in its gross form, in its subtle form, in its seed form. It is it consists just of vasanas. So these uh, five. That is the physical form of the body, the life that animates it and the mind, intellect, and will that function within it, all we experience all collectively as ourself, as, as, as I. So, as Bhagavan says in that verse 5 of Uludunapdu, 
The body is a form composed of five sheaths. Therefore, all five are included in the term body. So when Bhagavan says, ego is that which is aware of itself as I am this body, he's what he means by the body is referring to all the five sheaths. Why is that? For a very simple reason. Nobody has ever experienced themselves as a dead body. When we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, the body is always alive. So the, so the, the, the body and the life are both uh, present. And also, we never experience ourselves as a sleeping body. It's a, whatever body we experience as I always seems to be awake. Even in dream, the body we take to be ourselves seems to be awake. So in a, a body that is awake, there is a mind, intellect, and will functioning. So we never experience ourselves as any of these five sheaths without experiencing ourselves as all these five sheaths. So the nature of ego is to always experience itself as this bundle of five sheaths called body, or what we can also call person. When we say, I am a person, that person consists of all these five sheaths. That is different from ego. Ego is the I that identifies itself as I am this person. I am this body consisting of five sheaths. It's very important to make this distinction because in a dream, we also experience ourselves as a body consisting of five sheaths. That body consisting of five sheaths is not what has projected the dream world. That is a part of the projection. What has projected the dream world is ego. Because we as ego take ourselves to be a body, we take every other body to be an ego. That is, it seems to us when we see other, when I say body, I mean uh, uh, living bodies, bodies that are awake, other people whom we're interacting with, they seem to be just as aware as we seem to be. That is, we seem to be this body, we, we as ego seem to be this body, and every other body seems to be a, an ego. There seems to be an ego there. So as long as we are dreaming, it seems that we are one among many. There are a multiplicity of, of of people in a dream. We are just one among them. We shouldn't take the person we seem to be to be any more real than any of the other people, because that person we seem to be is as much a projection as all the other people. This is very important to understand, because when Bhagavan says this waking world is a dream, he's not saying that this person we take ourselves to be is any more real than any other person. While we are experiencing this waking state, we take ourselves to be a person. And therefore, every other person we meet seems to be just like us, seems to be sentient just like us. So when we are, when we are interacting with this world, we need to interact with this world as if it is all real. Because who is it who is interacting? It is this person we seem to be. This person is no more real than any other person. So if, for example, if we see other people suffering, we shouldn't think, oh, it's all a dream, so I don't have to care about others, I only have to take care of myself. What we mean by myself is the person we seem to be. That's obviously um, the height of uh, egotism and selfishness. That is not what we should understand. What we should understand is, so long as we take ourselves to be this person, Every other person is, is, 
for all intents and purposes, every other person is as sentient and as um, worthy of care and concern and respect as this person that we take ourselves to be. So, though Bhagavan says that, but the the most useful teaching for us to turn within is to understand that there is just one ego and everything else is a projection of ego, he doesn't mean that there's just one person. Because so long as we rise as ego and take ourselves to be a person, there seem to be a multiplicity of persons. So this person we take ourselves to be is in no way special. We, we shouldn't think, oh, I'm the only person here, so I should care only for myself. No. So long as we take ourselves to be a person, every other person seems to be a sentient being just like us. Actually, the body is not sentient. The body, as Bhagavan says, is jada. But so long as we take ourselves to be this body, this body seems to be sentient. And so every other body seems to be sentient. So so long as we're interacting, so long as we're looking outwards, interacting with this world, obviously we have to interact with the world as if it was real. So why does Bhagavan tell us it's all unreal? It's all just a dream. That is in to make it to make us more willing to look within and go, go within. But so long as we're going outwards, it all seems very real. The more we go within, the more we are able to detach ourselves from this person we seem to be. And so the less real all this will seem to be. It still seems to be real because we're still identified with the body. But it, it, our identity, as, our, as we progress in this path of self-investigation, our identification with the body becomes more and more attenuated. It's still there, but it's less strong. If if we if we are totally worldly minded, always going outwards, this identification with the body is extremely strong. This identification is weakened to the extent to which we go within. So, to the extent to which we weaken this identification with the body, to that extent, we will be able to look upon the world as unreal. Obviously, that that doesn't mean we should behave in the world as if it's unreal, because what is behaving? is the person who is a part of the world. So this person we seem to be should behave in this world as if the world is real, because the person is a part of that world. But we need to separate ourselves by turning our attention more and more within. So when Bhagavan says this world, this waking uh, world is just as much a is no more real than a dream world. He means it literally. So the, the, this person who asked the question there, how literally should we take life to be a dream? Absolutely literally. But just like in a dream, so long as we're dreaming, it all seems real. So long as we're dreaming this dream, it will all seem real. And we should behave in this dream accordingly. Because we who are behaving in the dream are ourselves a part of the dream world. But as the dreamer, as ego, we need to separate ourselves from this. So to go through the, um, the, uh, what this uh, person who wrote this question, what they have asked is, they say, um, from an intellectual level, I can relate to this when I look at the world and its inhabitants as being a collective of apparent individual entities 
whereas in fact it's the one, within brackets, Brahman, playing out the script we call life. No, it is not Brahman that is playing out the script. Brahman is our own real nature. Brahman, the one, is our own real nature. That is pure being. It doesn't do anything. So Brahman is not playing out the script. What is playing out the script is our self as ego. As ego, we have identified ourselves as, as, as a person in this. Ego is the dreamer. But the dreamer always, the dreamer, the dreamer never experiences. Okay, the dream, as, as the dreamer, we always experience ourselves as if we are a person in our dream. This is why, though the entire dream is our own creation, it's our own projection. When we're dreaming, we can't, if, if there's a war or a famine or a pandemic or something, we can't just wish that away. If we're being chased by a monster in the dream, we can't just uh, um, wish it away. Why? Because we, though we are the creator of that dream, we don't experience ourselves as the creator because we're experiencing ourselves as a creature within our creation. That is, the, as ego, we always identify ourselves as I am this body. This body is not the creator of a dream, it's a part of a dream creation. So because we take ourselves to be a part of a dream, Though it's our own creation, we seem to have no control over it, or very little. We have, we may seem to have control over our body, but we can't. We don't have a control over anything else, because we just seem to be a small part of this vast dream world. But we, we ourselves have created. So, um, what is playing? In, what has projected this world is not Brahman. It is only ego. Bhagavan makes that very, very clear. In in the Upanishads, an analogy is given, but Brahman projects the world from within itself and again withdraws it back, just like a spider uh, 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 emits thread from within itself and then draws it back into itself. That analogy is given. But Bhagavan has used that same analogy in the fourth paragraph of Nana, but there he clearly says it is the mind that has projected the world out and draws it back in. So is Bhagavan contradicting what is said in the Upanishads? No. Bhagavan is clarifying what is meant in the Upanishads. Because it is Brahman as Brahman doesn't project anything. It's only Brahman as mind that has projected this. That is, we ourselves are Brahman. There's no Brahman other than ourselves. Tatvamasi, you yourself are that. Um, but now, though Brahman is what we actually are, we now have risen as ego and take ourselves to be a person. So it's only as ego that we have projected the world. So Brahman itself never does anything. Ego is what projects the world and then play, um, and plays in this world as if it were a part of its own uh, dream creation. Um, and then uh, I just I won't go through everything, but some points that need to be clarified in this question: How literally should we take uh, life to be a dream? Absolutely, literally. But when Bhagavan says this life is no more real than a dream, this waking, what we take to be the waking state is actually just another dream. He means it literally. Just just like the dream is a projection of ego, but in the, 
But ego in the dream takes itself to be a person in the dream and so seems to be a helpless creature within the dream, exactly the same in the waking state. It is ego alone, the one ego. Who, who is it who has projected this uh, dream? There, there seem to be many people in this dream. So which person has projected this dream? Obviously, no person has projected this dream because the, all people... All persons are a part of the dream. What has projected this dream is ego. So who is ego? Ego is, the, ego is the one who is seeing all this. Ego happens to see itself as an individual in the dream, but that doesn't mean that the individual has projected the dream, the, the dream world. Um, so just, just like in dream, we project the dream, take ourselves to be a person within that dream and therefore interact with so many other people in the dream, exactly the same in this waking state. And just, just uh, other people that we, that we see are no less real than the person we take ourselves to be. So long as we take ourselves to be this person, this person seems to us to be real. This person seems to us to be sentient. So all other people e seem to be equally real and equally sentient. So we have to, be we have to behave in this world accordingly. Um, we, can, we can see all this as unreal only when we wake up from the dream. So long as we're dreaming a dream, the dream will always seem to be real. But as soon as we wake up from a dream, then only we reckon we, we actually ex are able to see for ourselves that it is unreal. Um, and then the next question that was asked is, what can be called real in the apparent dreamlike individual life? Nothing in the dream is real. Not even the dreamer is real. What is real is only the fundamental awareness I am, which is the reality of dreamer, the reality of ego. Um, everything else is unreal. The dreamer is unreal and everything dreamt is unreal. Because the dreamer is not Brahman, it's not ourself as we actually are, it's only ourself as ego. And then they go on to ask, is it that the sense of individuality by definition is dualistic and therefore unreal, thus a dream? Well, yes, it is true. Obviously, individuality means a separate existence. So long as we have a separate existence, there are obviously other things that are separate from us. So there's duality. What is the fundamental duality? Is subject and object. So long as we rise as ego, we experience ourselves as a subject and everything else as objects. This subject-object duality, this is the fundamental duality. So um, having a sense of individuality, a sense of separate existence is inherently, I mean, that is what gives rise to this, uh, this, this subject-object duality. Um, and it... Um, that isn't the reason why this is a dream, but uh, this experience, neither subject nor object are real. So the state in which we experience subject and objects is just a dream. It's just a mental fabrication, a, a projection of ego. 
And then they go on to say, for instance, my neighbor will be having a slightly different viewing point in looking at the world since his locality is slightly different. When my neighbor, when, yes, so, so long as we experience ourselves as a person in this world, every other person seems to have a different viewpoint, not only because they're in a different place in space and therefore seeing from a different angle, we, we all seem to be separate individuals. And each individual sees the world through their own, through the colored glasses of their own vasanas. So people see the world very differently. What, what some people think is good, other people think is bad, and so on and so forth. So there are so many different viewpoints. But all these different people and all their different viewpoints exists in whose view? Only in the view of ourself as ego. Actually, no person has any view at all. The person we seem to be seems to have a view because we take ourselves to be that person. And therefore, every other person seems to have a point of view. But actually, all exist only in the view of ourself as ego. Um, and then they go on to say, when my neighbor is merely a dream character projected by me, here we need to be very careful. Our neighbor is not a dream character projected by us as this person. This person that we take ourselves to be is as much a dream character as any other person in this dream. But projected by me means projected by ego. So not only is, um, is my neighbor merely a dream character, the person I take myself to be is merely a dream character projected by me. Um, when my dream, neighbor is merely a dream character projected by me, he actually doesn't exist at all. Yes, he doesn't exist at all, but also the person we take ourselves to be doesn't exist at all. Even the me who has projected all this, namely ego, doesn't actually exist at all. We seem to be ego only because we're looking outwards. If we look within, there's no such thing as ego to be found. As Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludnapadu, Tedinal Otum Pidakum, it's sort, it takes flight. That is, we seem to be ego only when we're looking away from ourselves at other things. If we look at ourselves keenly enough, we will find there's no such thing as ego at all. And since everything else exists only in the view of ego, when we see there's no ego at all, we'll see there's nothing, there's no dream at all. There is just Brahman, pure Satchitananda. Um, but so long as we take our, so long as we rise as ego, we take ourselves to be a body. So this body seen, this person we take ourselves to be seems to be real, and all other people seem to be equally real. Um, so to say other people don't exist, but I alone exist, as if as if this person has somehow has more reality than any other person. That is a complete misunderstanding. So that's an, a misunderstanding that we need to be very uh, wary about. We need to avoid falling into thinking along those lines. We need to understand that this person we seem to be is as unreal as every other person. Um, so my neighbor doesn't exist at all, along with all the wars, disease, seasons, bodies, plants, volcanic corruptions, planets, entities, etc. Yes, all these things, including the person we seem to be, exist only in the view of ourselves as ego, the dreamer. So none of these things actually exist at all. 
but they all seem to exist so long as we rise as ego. Can we conclude that these do not do actually not exist, hence making all interpersonal dynamics in our life as unreal? When the life itself is unreal, by life here we mean the life of the body. When the life of this body, when our, when our existence as this body is unreal, everything else in this dream is unreal. So yes, it's all unreal. Um, and then they go on to, to give another alternative. Or should we take the dreamlike waking state to be more in a more metaphorical sense? No, it's not in a metaphorical sense. When Bhagavan said this waking state is just a dream, he means it literally. That is, in every respect, this waking state is, is, is um, the same as a dream. Because we are now in this waking state, this waking state seems to us to be real, and other dreams seem to be unreal. But when we're in those other dreams, they seem to be real and all other dreams seem to be unreal. So always our current state seems to be real. So if this if Bhagavan isn't talking, isn't, doesn't say, isn't using the dream state as a metaphor. He means literally this waking state is, it's, is, is actually just a dream. Um, and then they go on, so that the multiplicity of bodies seemingly exists because of the identification with our bodies and therefore mistakenly experiences individuals forming a multiplicity of realities limited in their nature, therefore arbitrary and impossible to be taken for real. That is, the, the multiplicity of realities, it, there's no multiplicity of realities, there's only one thing that is actually real. And multiplicity is a mere appearance. What is real is only one. So long as we are aware of multiplicity, that itself is un that is ignorance and that is unreal. Bhagavan expresses it very beautifully in verse 13 of Uludunapadu. He begins by saying, Jnanamam tane me. That means oneself who is jnana alone is real. Jnana here means pure awareness. So our self is pure awareness alone is real. Nana vam jnanam agnanamam. Awareness of multiplicity is ignorance. Even that ignorance which is unreal does not exist apart from our independent of our self, which who alone are real. And then he gives the analogy of gold and the ornament. But many ornaments are unreal. Do they exist in the do they exist as other than the gold? Um, so, uh, multiplicity comes into existence as soon as we rise as ego. As soon as we rise as ego, we limit ourselves to the form of the body, and consequently, we're aware of a multiplicity of other forms. And so long as we identify ourselves as I am this body, every other form seems to be equally real. But, but none of them are actually real. And then another alternative, or is it to be taken as a dream due to the impermanent nature of the world we see as defined in Advaita Vedanta as things that are changing, perceived and impermanent are unreal. Yes, whatever is un impermanent is unreal. Whatever is changing is unreal. Um, so uh, everything in a dream 
just like everything in this waking state, it's all unreal. It, not, it's all constant. It's impermanent. It, it has. It's a mere. It's a mere appearance. It doesn't actually exist, even though it seems to exist. And then another alternative, or a dream because of the fact that we can practically make up any narrative or worldview we like, creating the world as a projection made up by our ever restlessly outgoing mind. That is, it's not only our, our that is this, this uh, question seems to be assuming that there's actually a world out there and we each have an individual view on it, but actually this, the world and all the individual views on it all exist only in the view of ourself as ego. Um, or a dream in the sense that all is predestined and we erroneously believe ourselves to be the doer or actor in the projected life we live. Um, this is touching upon the law of karma, we need to be, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the law of karma. When Bhagavan said all is predestined, what he meant is, what is predestined is prarabdha. That is all that we are given to experience is predestined. But the, what we are given to experience, what is, what is our destiny in this lifetime is the fruit of actions we've done in the past. The actions that bear fruit are actions that we do under the sway of our vishayavasanas. So it, we shouldn't think that our own, all our own actions are predestined. That is, the actions of mind, speech, and body are being driven by two forces. One is by our vasanas. So whatever we do under the sway of our vasanas is a gamya. But also certain because whatever we are to experience has to be experienced, certain actions of our mind, speech, and body are necessary to facilitate that uh, us to experience those things. Those actions that are necessary for us to do in order to experience our prarabdha, those actions are actions we are made to do by God. So, um, as Bhagavan says in the first sentence of a note he wrote for his mother, in accordance with the prarabdha of each one, he who is for that, meaning God or Guru, being there, there, meaning in the heart of each one of us, will make us act. That doesn't mean that all the actions we do are actions that we're made to do by God, because if all the actions we did were actions we were made to do by God, then we wouldn't be the doer, and therefore, we, we wouldn't have to experience the resulting fruit. As Bhagavan says in verse 38 of Uludunapadu, if we are a doer of actions, we will have to experience the resulting fruit. That means so long as we are experiencing the resulting fruit of past actions, we are still experiencing ourselves as the doer. So who is the doer of action? The doer of action is ego. Because the instruments of action our mind, speech, and body. So long as we rise as ego, we experience mind, speech, and body as I. So I am thinking, I am talking, I am doing, I am sitting, standing, running, whatever. So we are, we, because we identify ourselves with this mind and body, whatever actions are done by these, we experience as I am doing. 
those actions that we do under the sway of our vasanas are will bear fruit and those fruit are what we what is later destined for us to experience uh, the, the, what god allots for us to experience that god selects which fruit we are to experience when um so the doership doership is the very nature of ego so this is why in verse 38 of ulunapta that is referring to bhagavan says if we are a doer of actions in other words, if we rise as ego and therefore identify ourselves with the uh, mind, speech, and body that do actions, if we have a doer of actions, we will have to experience the resulting fruit. When one knows oneself by investigating who is the doer of actions, doership will depart and all the three karmas will come to an end. This is liberation, which is eternal. So, Doership is the very nature of ego. Ego is the doer of the action and the experiencer of the, the fruit of action. So the kartrutva, or a sense of doership, is, is the nature of ego. And the boktrutva, or sense of experiencership, is also the nature of ego. So when Bhagavan says, when one knows oneself by investigating who is the doer of action, doership will depart. What he means by when one knows oneself, he means when we know what we actually are. How can we know what we actually are? By investigating who am I the doer. If we investigate, yeah, the doer is ego, not what we actually are. But if we investigate this ego, when we investigate ego, we're investigating ego is the adjunct mixed awareness I am. What we're investigating is that the, the reality of ego, which is that fundamental awareness I am. So when we investigate ourselves keenly enough, we will know ourselves as we actually are. Therefore, ego, thereby ego will be destroyed. When ego is destroyed, doership and experiencership come to an end, because doership and experiencership are the nature of ego. In the absence of doership, there cannot be any agamya karma. That is, we cannot do any action under the... Uh, sway of our vasanas when the doer is no longer there, when, when the sense of doership is no longer there. Likewise, we cannot experience the other two, the, the sanchitta, which is the store of fruit waiting to be experienced, and the prarabdha, which is the fruit that we are given to experience in this life. Since he, when ego dies, ego is no longer there to experience these things. That's why Bhagavan says, doership will depart and all the three karmas will come to an end. So, uh, so long as we rise as ego, the cause of doership is our rising as ego. Because we rise as ego, we have this sense of doership, we do actions under the sway of our vasanas, and hence we have to experience the resulting fruit. And what is predestined is the, what fruit we are to experience in this lifetime. In other words, everything that we are to experience in this lifetime is predestined. That doesn't mean our actions are predestined, because we act under the sway of our vasanas. So, the prarabdha determines what we are to experience. Our will determines what we want to experience and what we try to experience. This is why there is no, there is no, um, that as Bhagavan says in verse 19 of Uludunapadu, um, the dispute as to which prevails 
fate or will is only for those who do not know the root of fate and will. The root of fate and will is ego. It's ego who has a, a will, consequently does action, and consequently experiences the fruit of those actions. So why Bhagavan said this dispute is only for such people? Because if we understand that ego is both the doer of the action and the experiencer of the fruit, we will understand that there's no conflict between will and uh, destiny. And it's a will and destiny. That is what is fate or destiny is what we are to experience. Will doesn't determine what we are to experience. It determines what we want to experience and what we try to experience. So it may be my destiny to be a pauper all my life. That doesn't stop me wanting to be rich and trying to be rich. So it, uh, my desire to be rich doesn't obstruct my destiny, which is to be poor. And my destiny, which is to be poor, doesn't obstruct my desire to be rich. So there is no conflict between will and fate. They both go hand in hand. But, but fate is the result of the past misuse of our will. Um, because we miss it, because we are, when we, so long as we rise as ego, we are misusing our will to do actions. The fruit of those actions that we do under the sway of our own will, in other words, under the sway of our bhasanas, is what we later will have to experience as uh, prarabdha. Um, so this is a separate issue. It's not, this isn't the reason why this is all a dream. All this um, uh, agamya, sanchitra, and prarabdha, all these three karmas, they're all uh, occurring within this dream. Um, and the person says, I find rather confusing to comp this I find rather confusing to comprehend and sometimes difficult to deal with. I hope that what I've said now helps to clarify this a little. But in a later email, this uh, same person wrote, um, I think where I tend to go wrong is my thinking in my thinking is the fact that the snake can only be experienced by the jiva, whereas seeing the rope inevitably implies the loss of ego. In jnani, there can only be the rope. Yes, that is correct. All this, all, all, the, all this dreaming, uh, the dream exists only in the view of ourself as ego or jiva. So, we, so long as we are seeing this dream, we are not seeing what we actually are. When we see what we actually are, that, 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 that is, this dream is like the snake, it's a mere appearance. When we see what we actually are, what we actually are is like the rope. When we see ourselves as we actually are, we will no longer, that, that, that ego is thereby destroyed because ego is a false awareness of ourself. Ego is the false awareness, I am this body. When we see ourselves as we actually are, we will no longer experience ourselves as I am this body and consequently will no longer uh, um, experience any dream. So uh, seeing ourselves as we actually are implies the uh, loss of ego, the destruction of ego. And then what remains is only ourselves as we actually are. And what knows ourselves as we actually are is only ourselves as we actually are. This is why Bhagavan often used to say, jnana me jnani. Jnana alone is the jnani. 
Jnana means pure awareness. What knows pure awareness is only pure awareness. Pure awareness can never be an object of knowledge. So the rope is analogous to the pure awareness that we actually are. So for the jnani, there is only a rope. There never was a snake. It's only in the view of ourself as ego or jiva, but this snake appears, this snake called this uh, dream life. So I hope I uh, adequately answered those questions. These were questions that were actually sent a couple of weeks ago. For the, someone wanted me to answer these questions in that meeting, but the email wasn't received in time, so I couldn't answer it then, so I'm answering it now. So does anyone have any questions on this subject or any other related subject? Uh, namaste. I had a question for Michael. Bhagavan says in paragraph 10 of Nanya, that Vishaya Vasanas rise in countless numbers, and in your translation you have elaborated that they rise as thoughts and phenomena. Could you please explain how exactly Vishaya Vasanas rise as phenomena? Is this whole world a projection of our Vishaya Vasanas? I'm just scrolling up a bit. I can understand Vishaya Vasanas rising as thoughts or desires, but not as phenomena or this world. Okay, yeah, that's it. Right, okay, yes. Um, Vishaya means an object or phenomenon. So Vishaya Vasanas are the inclination to experience objects or phenomena. They are the, the our Vishaya Vasanas are the seeds that give rise to all Vishayas. So as Bhagavan says, for example, in the fourth paragraph of Nana, he says, um, the world is nothing but thoughts. He also says in the 14th paragraph, in 14th paragraph, he puts it particularly succinctly, Jagamem Badu Nineve. What is called the world is only thoughts. In, in the fourth paragraph, uh, how he expresses it is, Ninevugale tavitu jagam endro poral anyamai ille. That means um, uh, excluding thoughts, there is not separately any such thing as world. So the whole, why? Because as Bhagavan said, this whole world is nothing but a dream. A dream is nothing but our own thoughts. Here, by the, what Bhagavan means by thoughts is not just the Often when when people talk about thoughts, they're thinking just about the mental chatter. But according to, Bhagavan uses the term thought in a much broader sense to mean any any mental um, impression, any mental phenomenon, any mental um, uh, yeah, any any mental activity. All the thoughts. So this this world is nothing but a series of mental fun, uh, impressions. As he says, for example, in verse um, 6 of Uludunapadu, the world is nothing but the form of the five um, sense, uh, sense impressions. Uh, the world, is, the world is, it's only the five sense impressions, nothing else. So uh, what we call the world is nothing but um, sights, sounds, uh, um, smells, tastes, and tactile sensations. If you remove these five, there's no such thing as world. So all these 
sense impressions are mental impressions. That 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 is, uh, though the the impressions seem to be received through the senses, what is actually aware of these impressions is only ourself as ego. So these are impressions on us. So there's no world independent of our own uh, our own perception of it. So. The entire world, as Bhagavan said, is nothing but a projection of our own vasanas. In this fourth paragraph, he says, um, after saying excluding thoughts, there is not separately any such thing as world, he goes on to say, in sleep there are no thoughts and there is also no world. In waking and dream there are thoughts and there is also world. Uh, the, the idea is because there are thoughts in sleep sorry, because there are no thoughts in sleep, therefore there is no world because there are thoughts in waking and dream, therefore there is world and then he goes on to give this uh, the spider analogy just as a spider spins out thread from within itself and again draws it back into itself so the mind makes the world a uh, appear from within itself and again dissolves it back into itself. So the, the mind projects the world. Bhagavan sometimes used to uh, use the, um, the a cinema projector as an analogy for this. That is, the, the pictures on the screen are like this world appearance. But that world, this picture, this world appearance is projected from within ourselves. The light that, it, um, that projects all this is the light of pure awareness. But that light of pure awareness goes through the film, which is, Bhagavan said, the film is the vasanas. So when that light of pure awareness goes through the film, it projects the world, and the world is seen by ourselves, not as pure awareness, but only by in the view of the the the, the light, there's no there are no pictures. It's only in the view of ourself as ego that the pictures appear. So Bhagavan in that when he explained that analogy, he always used to say the film is just is the vasanas. So the, the entire world is nothing but a projection of our own vasanas. That is why I said in my translation, when I said uh, vasanas rise in countless numbers, I, I may have put in brackets as thoughts or phenomena, because all phenomena are nothing but a projection of our own vasanas. So after giving the, this analogy of the spider, but what, what Bhagavan says is just as the spider spins out thread from within itself and again draws it back into itself, so the mind makes the world appear from within itself uh, and again dissolves it back into itself. When the mind comes out from Atmasarupa, the world appears. Therefore, when the world appears, Swarupa, our own real nature, does not appear. When Swarupa appears, the world does not appear. That is, so long as we are seeing the world, who is seeing the world? It's only ourself as ego that we see the world. So long as we, um, so so long as we see the world, we who see it are ego, and ego is that which identifies itself as I am this body. So long as we are aware of ourselves as I am this body, we're not aware of ourselves as we actually are. So 
so long as we are aware of the world, we are not aware of ourselves as we actually are. When we're aware of ourselves as we actually are, the world uh, doesn't appear, as Bhagavan says. When Sarupa appears, the world doesn't appear. When Sarupa appears means when we when we are aware of ourselves as we actually are, the world does not appear. So it's only in the view of ourself as ego that the world uh, seems to exist. I, I hope that adequately answers that question. Right, okay. So the next question, this questioner actually has uh, two questions. There's one here and then one comes a little bit later. So he says, um, ego will existence in the dream state also, but yet it realizes not to believe it. What causes that? Can't the same thing also ensure ego starts accepting the illusion created by mind and body? I think that I think what that person is asking, but um, the we're able to recognize that dream is unreal. Why can't we recognize that this is unreal? The simple answer is, so long as we are dreaming, the dream seems every bit as real as our, our present state. It's only when we leave that dream and come to this dream, but we recognize that the dream is unreal. But as I explained earlier, so long as we are dreaming, we experience ourselves as a person as a body within that dream within that dream world since we are real when we experience ourselves as a body the body seems to be real and since the body is a part of the dream world the whole dream world seems to be real so so long as we are dreaming whatever we are experiencing in the dream seems to us to be real but as soon as we wake up our identification with the dream body is severed because our identification switches from the, that dream body to this dream body, the, the, the body of this present state. So we at once recognize that the previous state was a dream. Sometimes, uh, uh, I think most of us have probably had this experience, sometimes we wake up from a dream and we begin to go about our day-to-day -day activities, and then we wake up a second time. The first waking was, we were waking from one dream into another dream before we woke up into this dream. So that shows the, the but so in the, when we woke up from the first dream into the second dream, we at once recognized that the first dream was unreal. It was just a dream, but the second dream, seems to us to be real because that's our present state then we wake up again into this dream and we then recognize only recognize that the second dream was a, a dream and therefore unreal but why then do we recognize the unreality of the dreams we have at night but don't recognize the unreality of this in this state we reckon uh, the unreality of uh, dreams we have at night but in the dreams we have at night we don't recognize the unreality of this state why is that because when we are dreaming that dream seems to be a continuity of our present waking state we still seem to be the same person 
We assume that the body we're experiencing in dream is the same body that we're experiencing in waking state. There's a reason for this, because our entire life as this person, whatever person we take ourselves to be, is one long dream. This dream is interrupted every day by periods of sleep. And the sleep is interrupted by periods of dream. So the dreams we have at night, or, or when but the dreams that interrupt our, our daily sleep, are dreams within a dream. That is why the, our, we, we, now, 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 for example, I, I experience myself as I am Michael. In a dream, I don't experience myself as I am Mary or I am uh, John or anyone. I experience myself only as I am Michael, because the dream seems to be a continuity of this present dream, that the dreams at night seem to be a continuity of this dream, because they are dreams that occur within this dream. That doesn't mean that this dream is any more real than those dreams. They're just dreams within dreams. I'm not, because I'm, uh, I'm not entirely sure what that question was asking. I'm not sure whether this was, um, this is an adequate answer to the question, but from what I understood of the question, what I surmised may be the idea behind the question, um, I, I gave this answer. So I hope this answer answers the question. If the questioner is not satisfied, then they can come back and ask, the, reword the question and ask it again. So, in fact, I got the, those questions out of order. So this was the this is the first question that he put, actually. Just All right. Uh, but this eternal nature of the self, is it a matter of just faith or there is a potential for direct experience? Because in the absence of direct experience, Purely on faith, remaining in self is very difficult. We ourselves know that that is we we can if we if we if we consider our experience carefully, it is very clear that everything we experience is impermanent. Everything is undergoing change. We the, the, what we're experiencing throughout the waking and dream state is constantly undergoing change. The only thing that is permanent, the only thing that is unchanging, not only in waking and dream, but even in sleep, when everything else disappears, the only thing that is remains constant is our own existence, I am. So we, we don't have to take this on faith. We clearly know I exist now, I existed in sleep, and I existed in dream. So the continuity of our own existence is not something we have to take on faith. It's something that we clearly can we can clearly recognize, we can clearly see for ourselves if we think about it. That is Bhagavan, many of the things many things that Bhagavan teaches us. They're things that we that would not have been clear to us before Bhagavan teaches, before we read them in Bhagavan's teachings. But when we read them and think about them, then it becomes very clear to us. Bhagavan is actually pointing out the obvious, but the obvious, but till now we have been overlooking. 
So we we don't have to take what Bhagavan says merely on trust. We 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 need to understand what it is he is point, pointing out. If we understand what it is, we will see. But he's actually pointing out what is what should have been obvious to us, but which we had always overlooked. We're experts at taking things for granted. Very, very good at that. Yes. <laughs> so then, um, is that you finished with that, Michael? Yes. Yes. Next one. Okay. So the next one is: Are there any favorite classic Indian writings, especially poetry, for instance, of the Tamil saints or Advaita? That Sri Ramana recommended enjoyed. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, but, but obviously, Bhagavan had great love for Tiruvasakam for other devotional works in Tamil. Um, he often used to refer to Thai Manava. Um, we, we, and not only in Tamil, in Sanskrit, we know Bhagavan, in Uludunapdu Anabandam, Bhagavan has translated quite a number of verses from uh, the Yoga Vashista. Um, uh, works like Ashtavakra Gita, um, Ribu Gita, and all these these sort of works. Bhagavan referred to them. Bhagavan translated forty two verses from um, from the Bhagavad Gita. He selected and uh, and uh, translated forty two verses from the Bhagavad Gita. Um, he translated. Uh, Two of the Upa Agamas, uh, uh, Devi Kalotram and um, Apmasakshakara Prakanam. He translated Vivika Chudamani. Um, we, we can't say that it's just because. We can't say, but because Bhagavan has translated them, therefore they're his favorites. We can't say that. Uh, under different circumstances, he, he was. Um, how Bhagavan came to translate Vivekananda money? There's a Tamil prose translation of Vivekananda money, um, but that was out of print, and someone was trying to get hold of a copy of that. No, I think it's a sorry, it's a verse translation. It's a verse translation. Since that was out of print, and since that person who wanted to get a copy didn't know Sanskrit, he asked Bhagavan. Bhagavan, I'm not able to get hold of this book. Uh, so Bhagavan then translated for him in Tamil prose. Um, so if, most of the things that Bhagavan wrote, it was under some prompting in some context. But I mean, obviously, yeah, we can say Bhagavan did uh, did appreciate some of uh, the, these texts. But if we that doesn't mean we have to study all these texts because if we compare Bhagavan's own writings with these older texts, um, particularly as far as the Advaita texts are concerned, Bhagavan's writings are so much uh, so much deeper and clearer, and um, far far simpler and far more practical. Most important of all, so if we if we've read and um, if we're following Bhagavan's path, we don't have to read all these other texts. If we focus our attention on, on reading and trying to put into practice what Bhagavan himself has taught us, we will get everything that we could possibly get from any other text. 
that's particularly true of the Advaita text. As far as the devotional text is concerned, yes, Bhagavan obviously had great love for Manika Vasaka. He used to quote Manika Vasaka and other Tamil Shaivite saints and also the Alwas, the, the Tamil Vaishnava saints. Um, Bhagavan often used to quote Namalwa because he's the one whose verses come closest to an Advaitic point of view among the Alwas. The, um, the, the Tamil Vaishnava saints. So Bhagavan appreciated all devotional literature. But he very himself much. has given us the very best devotional literature in the form of Aranatya Stutipanchikam. Very, very that, that is what he's sung in Aranatya Stutipanchikam is extremely deep and um, deep in meaning and uh, a rich a blend of bhakti and jnana. I hope that adequately answers that question. Sorry, Michael, can you tell the name again? I couldn't capture that the, the name name of the poetry book. Uh, which was which, the, which one? The one that you just mentioned, the last two. Not the not the one that Bhagwan wrote, but the other two. I I mentioned um uh Tiruvasakam by Manika Vachaka. And also the um and also, of course, Jnana Sambandana, but other Tamil Shaivite saints, but also the um, Vaishnava saints. There's um, there's a, a work in Tamil called the Nalairat Divya Prabandham. That's the 4,000 um, verses composed by Namalwa and other Alwas. I think there were 12 Alwas. They were Tamil Vaishnava saints. So Bhagavan also often used to refer to their works. An English translation you recommend? I don't know about English translations. Um, I do, many of these works probably haven't been uh, translated. I think, well, Tiruvasakam, I, I know G, in, the, um, in the 19th century, a person called G.U. Pope translated Tiruvasakam, but how accurate his translation is, I don't know. Um, but when my suggestion is that when we have Bhagavan's works, we should focus on Bhagavan's works. We, I mean, all these other things, they're interesting if we know the language. If we don't know the language, let's not be too bothered about these things because all that we need to understand in order to follow Bhagavan's path, he is taught, he are there in his own original writings. So, so long as we have, so long as we have access, either if we understand Tamil, that's best of all. If we don't understand Tamil, reliable translations of Bhagavan's own original works, that will give us all that we need to understand to follow his path. Thank you. I can't recommend other translations because I, 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 seen other translations, so occasionally referred to other translations. Often I've, I'm not satisfied with other translations, um, but it's uh, sometimes for reference. I look at other translations and then try to understand the original if I need to. But generally, generally I'm not, I, I'm quite, I am more than satisfied with uh, Bhagavan's own works. Because when you've eaten a, a sumptuous feast, 
you no longer feel inclined to, to eat anything else. So with having feasted on Bhagavan's own original writings, I feel very little inclination to read anything else. Thank, I thank keep you. on coming back to Bhagavan's own works because Bhagavan's own works are a, are, are, are a never-ending fountain. It's always, but more we follow his 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 path, the more we we the more depth of meaning we see in his own writings. So we continue to learn from his writings as we go deeper and deeper into in, in our attempts to follow his path. Okay, shall I move on? Yes, yes. Okay. Anonymous question. Uh, when Bhagavan said there is no snake but a rope, he means all the existence is Brahman or Shivan in, in essence. But could he also mean that we shouldn't fear anything in this world? All dangers seem danger, but in reality it is the infinite love. Yes, dangers are, so long as we identify ourselves as I am this body, there seem to be so many dangers in this world. There are diseases and accidents and death is surely going to come to this body in one way or other sooner or later. So there's all sorts of dangers. If we want to be free of uh, fear, we have to be free of this false identification, I am this body. So we need to see ourselves as we actually are. Ourself as we actually are is analogous to the rope. Everything else is analogous to the snake. Well, so long as we see the snake, we don't see the rope. That is, well, we're always seeing only the rope, but we don't see the rope as a rope, so long as we see it as a snake. When we see the rope as a rope, we no longer see it as a snake. I suppose you can uh, see a rope and also see at the same time how it could be a snake. You can imagine that, but you're not going to fear it. If you see, if you actually see that it's a rope, yeah. you're no longer that, even though you, you can imagine, oh, yes, this, this must have looked like the head, this must have looked like the tail. Yeah. Um, but you're, you, you, you know clearly that it's a rope. You, don't, you, you can never mistake it to be a snake. Right, so um, the next one. Are there actions that can be done which are not due to or under the sway of vasanas? Or are there actions that happen which are not under the sway of our vasanas? Whatever actions are necessary in order for our prarabdha to unfold, those actions will be made to do. However, most of the actions we are made to do, we are at the same time doing under the sway of our vasanas. So if you want to refrain from doing actions under the sway of vasanas, we need to turn within and hold firmly to self-attentiveness. So long as we are holding firmly to self-attentiveness and not allowing our attention to be diverted away from ourself at all, 
then we are not being swayed by Vishaya Vasanas. Therefore, whatever actions our mind, speech, or body may be doing will be actions that they're made to do by Bhagavan in accordance with um, Prarabdha. But so long as we allow our attention to go outwards, we are under the sway of our Vasanas and inevitably we'll be doing actions under the sway of Vasanas. So we need not worry about those actions which we are made to do by in accordance with our destiny, because Bhagavan will make sure we do those actions. So those actions that are done in accordance with destiny will be will be made to do them. What we need to guard against is acting under the sway of our bhasanas. In other words, we need to guard against being swayed by our bhasanas. The bhasanas, the vishaya bhasanas, that is. Vishaya bhasanas take our attention outwards. When they take our attention outwards, the outward movement of our attention is what is called mental activity. And mental activity leads to activity of speech and activity of body. So the only way to avoid doing agamya, that is to do, do avoid doing any actions under the sway of our bhasanas, is to cling so firmly to self-attentiveness that we do not allow our attention to go outwards. We may not be able to cling to ourselves so firmly but now, but we, that is what we need to work towards. But let, we, we are not working to, we are not doing this just to avoid doing our gamya. We are trying to attend to ourselves in order to see what we actually are. Because only when we see what we actually are, will ego be destroyed, and when ego is destroyed, then all doership and experiencership comes to an end along with it. So we really shouldn't be concerned about action. The only thing we need to be concerned about is attending to ourselves more and more and more. If we attend to ourselves, everything else will be taken care of automatically. If we don't attend to ourselves, then we're constantly digging a hole for ourselves. We're immersing ourselves more and more in the great ocean of action, as Bhagavan says. We are drowning in samsara. So the only way to escape from this samsara is to cling firmly to self-attentiveness and thereby surrender ourselves completely to Bhagavan. Okay, shall we move on? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, I was listening to commentator on awareness who mentioned that Bhagavan really expounded for all, for all to just be and provided self-inquiry as a concession, though a beautiful concession. Is there any truth to this and why should self-inquiry be seen as a concession. No, it is not. I've heard people saying like this, these people have not at all understood what Bhagavan's teachings are about. Our real nature is pure being. So long as we allow our attention to go outwards, we are rising as ego. If we want to remain as pure being, we have to hold on to our being. By holding on to our being, this rising ego will subside and merge back into the pure being that we actually are. So self-investigation is the means by which we remain as we actually are. 
So it's not a concession. That is from, but Bowen makes it. I mean, people who say this, they they really have not a clue what they're talking about. If they were to pay any attention to what Bhagavan writes in works like Uludu, Napadu, Nana, and so on, they wouldn't speak in this way. It shows an extremely superficial and it, it it's a very frivolous and disrespectful thing to say because Bhagavan's teachings are all centered around this, the need for this practice. We can say the very purpose of Bhagavan's appearance in this world, appearance in human form, was just to tell us this, to turn within. And this is, Bhagavan said, this is what Aranatra taught him. Tirumbi ahandani dinamaha kankan teriyum and Aranatra. Bhagavan sings in Aksharamulai. That is, Tirumbi uh, aham, um, turning within. Tane dinam ahakankan, see yourself daily with the inner eye. Terium, it will be known. Endranayan Aranachala. Thus you told me my Aranachala. So, what Aranachala obviously didn't say that in words because Aranachala is a mountain. What Aranachala taught Bhagavan in silence, Bhagavan teaches us in words. And what Bhagavan teaches us in words is, Turning within, see yourself daily with the inner eye. So anyone who says that, um, I, I, I know one or two people who like to say this, and I, I, I think it's, it's extremely frivolous and extremely um, superficial, and it shows no respect at all for what Bhagavan has actually taught us. Bhagavan has taught in so many ways. For example, in verse... 22 of Uludunapadu, he says, how is it possible to measure the Lord who shines within the mind, giving light to the mind, except by turning the mind within and drowning it within the Lord? So there Bhagavan says, there's no other way. I mean, he clearly implies there's no other way. In, likewise, in verse 27, he says, the state in which I does not rise in the state in which we are that. Sorry, I'll just get the verse. Um, I'll first read 22. I'll read exactly as, um, except by turning the mind back within, completely and thereby completely immersing God, who shines within that mind, giving light to the mind, how to fathom God by the mind, consider. So the clear, that, that's a rhetorical question, but the clear implication is, but we cannot know God except by turning the mind back within. But God is always shining in the mind, giving light to the mind. God means our own real, what we, our own real nature. That's always shining in our mind as the pure awareness I am, giving light to the mind. So except by turning the mind back within and thereby uh, drowning it, merging it, in, in completely immersing it in him, how is it possible to fathom him, to know him? That's verse 22. And in verse 27, he asks a similar rhetorical question with the same implication. The state in which... Uh, one exists without rising, without I rising, is the state in which we exist as that. Nanudikum um, tanam uh, ade nadamal, 
Nanudia tan irupe sabudu evan. That that means um, uh, without investigating the place where I rises, how to reach the annihilation of oneself in which I does not rise. Saramal tan aduam tan nileil nipadu evan satru. Without reaching, that means without reaching the annihilation of ourself, how to stand in the state of oneself in which one is that? Uh, say. So in both these verses, Bhagavan is asking rhetorical questions that clearly imply, but without investigating ourself, the source from which we've risen as ego, we cannot uh, annihilate ourselves, annihilate ego, and thereby be as we actually are. So anyone who says this is a mere concession, they are obviously not serious uh, followers of Bhagavan's teachings. Right, so this is a long one. Um, right. Very long one. What do you think about what some modern teachings like a Course in Miracles say, in brief, they say the people in our dream act as mirrors that reflect who we are on an egoic level. So, for example, if a person or situation makes us angry, that means it's just the other person enacting a feature of our will, one that is unpleasant to us, that we fight against within us, and that we need to correct or rectify. Upon this correction, that situation supposedly never can appear in our experience again. That means we don't get angry for the reason we think, the personal situation, but for the feature of our will being expressed outside of us and that we aren't willing to accept yet. When we accept, we alone are the cause of that situation or person seemingly making us angry and rectify that, we'll rectify our will. It's just one example, but does this have any connection at all with Advaita as taught by Bhagavan? Uh, to some extent, but it's not, I don't think it's for, that, that is, whatever whatever we experience in our life is given to us according to prarabdha if we have understood bhagavan's teachings correctly and are trying to put it into practice we shouldn't inwardly react to external circumstances of course sometimes we're in certain circumstances where an outward response is necessary as bhagavan said we need to um we need to play our role in the world according to the circumstances, according to the role we have to play. However, inwardly we should be detached from all these things. The problem is that we generally, we, we react, if someone does something that we don't like or says something hurtful or creates some difficulty in our life, we inwardly, we, we get upset about it. That is wrong. As Bhagavan said, um, in the 19th paragraph of Nana, however bad other people may appear to be, disliking them is not proper. Uh, 
likes and dislikes are both to be disliked. So our aim is in this path to, that is by going within more and more, we are detaching ourselves from this person we seem to be. So we become less and less concerned about the external world. That doesn't mean, as this the questions seem to imply, but the Course of Miracles say, but if you, if you don't respond to a situation, then that situation won't occur again. That is not the case. What is destined to happen is going to happen. So we will continue to be, I mean, life throws all sorts of difficulties at us. But the more we go within, following Bhagavan's path, and thereby surrender ourselves, the less we will be affected by what is happening. That is, it won't change our prarabdha. It's not that the, the difficult situations will go away as soon as we stop respond, uh, inwardly reacting to them. No, difficult situations of one sort or another will continue coming according to prarabdha. That is the nature of samsara. But the less we are inwardly affected by whatever is happening outside, the uh, the more detached we come, and the more we are able to go within. So it, this, what is said there has some connection with Bhagavan's teaching, but it's not, ex, it's not expressed in exactly the same way that uh, Bhagavan would express it. Bhagavan, Bhagavan's essential teaching is that we should turn within more and more and more. The more we turn within, the less we will be we automatically be less concerned about what's going on outside. So, though the same difficulties will continue, even when we turn within, we'll be less and less affected by them. Because we are more and more detaching ourselves from the person we seem to be. I, I hope this is a, a clear answer to that question. This is the next one. Um, if there is no world beyond our perception of it, does it therefore mean that the world does not continue beyond the death of the body and mind? The entire dream dies with the perceiver. The dream comes to an end, but so long as the dreamer remains, dreaming will continue, one dream after another. So the death of the body and mind is just the ending of one dream. But, but the dreamer is ego. Ego continues. So until we eradicate ego, the, the dreaming will continue. Is it the same world or a different world? <laughs> it, it, uh, all, no world is real. It's all just a, a, a mental fabrication. It may will seem to be the same world, but... Um, that world is nothing but uh, uh, our own thoughts, as Bhagavan says. Okay, so um, she'll come on again a little bit later. So the next one is, uh, is there a source of first karma, i.e. why even put any self in the karmic cycle? It sounds like a chicken and egg. <laughs> Why even did God even do it? There's also corollary to it. Why doesn't God just universally ordain self-realization? The same question Yogananda asked Bhagavan. Uh, 
it is not we are putting the responsibility on god for the mess we have created we have created this mess by rising as ego when did we first rise as ego how did we first rise as ego why did we first rise as ego these are all um the wrong questions to ask bhagavan said any question you ask about the origin of ego is assuming that ego exists now first first investigate yourself here and now and see whether ego has ever risen in the first place we seem to have risen as ego because we're not looking at ourselves as in other words as bhagavan often used to say all this trouble is caused by avichara avichara means non-investigation we are not attending to ourselves um because we attend to other things instead of attending to ourselves all these things seem to be there so but all we need to do is to look within more and more and more if we look within keenly enough we will find but we have never risen as ego so with all these questions of how did ego first arise why did it first arise why did god allow this to happen why doesn't god give uh, ordain universal self realization these are all meaningless questions because all these questions are based on the assumption that we are ego even now yes we seem to be ego so long as we are seeing this world we who see the world are ego but is this what we actually are if we look within we will see that actually we have never risen as ego we have never done any karma there's never been any uh, god separate from ourselves or world what is alone is as it always is so the we are the cause of the problem and we are the solution to the problem our rising as ego causes all these problems our looking within and seeing what we actually are puts an end to all um to all these these seeming problems because when we look within keenly enough we will see but we have never risen as ego and therefore there has never been any world never has been anything the ultimate truth is ajata nothing has ever come into existence or ceased to exist what is alone is as it is always without ever undergoing any change and we are that that is we need to be very careful when we if we come to this spiritual path we need to clearly understand what is our aim our aim is to know and to be what we actually are so we should only ask those questions that are useful we can go on asking any number of questions but this is all outward going activity of the mind we should first understand which questions are really useful questions do these questions help us to go within so we we need to be we need to limit our curiosity about anything other than knowing what we actually are that is what we should be curious about we shouldn't be curious about anything else so the more we go deep in this practice the less we will be interested in entertaining all sorts of other questions because entertaining all these other questions it just is just giving food for the mind to go outwards more and more and more when we don't even know what we are why should we be concerned to find answers to all these other questions these are trivial questions the only really important question 
is who am I? And the only way to find the answer to that question is not by asking questions, but only by looking deep within ourselves to see ourselves as we actually are. So questions ultimately have to all come to an end. So long as we have a liking to ask questions, we are perpetuating our existence as a questioner. A questioner is ego. So ego needs to lose interest in asking any questions other than who or what am I? The no, less we are concerned about other things, the more we are truly progressing in this path. You're going to shorten your sessions by this means. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> I make myself redundant. I mean, I can be at peace. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the next one. Could you explain the analogy of dry coal and wet coal Bhagavan used to describe the spiritual ripeness of a student? Also, what did he mean when used when using another metaphor about getting caught in the jaws of a tiger? Okay, firstly, this um, Bhagavan used this analogy, not just, he used the analogy of, um, that is, dry coal, wet coal. Actually, Bhagavan said, um, he, the, the wettest substance, the substance that takes longest to burn, is a plantain, is a banana plant, because it's full of water. So if you put that on the fire, it'll take a long time to burn. If you put a uh, dry wood on the fire it will burn relatively fast if you put um if you put charcoal it'll burn even faster if you put um gunpowder it'll be destroyed immediately likewise how quickly we progress in this spiritual path all depends on the um on, on where we start if you're if you're on a journey Supposing you're you're in um, Delhi and you want to travel to Tiruvannamalai, and the only way to go to Tiruvannamalai is to walk. If you're in Delhi, it's going to take you quite a long time. There's a, it's probably a thousand, uh, a few thousand miles from Delhi to um, to uh, Tiruvannamalai. But if in, if in, if you're in Mumbai, you're a bit closer. If you're in Hyderabad, you're still closer. If you're in um, Chennai, you're still closer. If you're in Velour, you're still closer. So depending how far you are from your destination, how long it's going to take you to reach depends on how far you are from your destination. So the wet banana plant is very far from the destination of being burnt. The dry wood is closer to that destination. The charcoal is still closer. And the gunpowder is very, very close. As soon as it touches the fire, it's, it's, it's destroyed, it's burnt. So that is the meaning of that analogy. So we, we shouldn't be concerned about how far away is the goal. What we need to be concerned about is following the path. So long as we're following the path, going in the right direction, in other words, going back within, we, that's all we can do. And depending on the, the relative maturity of our mind, it may take longer or it may take less long. So we are not concerned about a short, a short journey. 
I mean, we're not concerned. We're not concerned about the length of the journey. What we are concerned about is traveling towards our destination. And our destination is to know and to be what we actually are. We can travel towards it only by attending to ourselves more and more and more. So we shouldn't be concerned about anything else. Our only concern should be to attend to ourselves here and now. How, how far away the goal is, leave that concern to Bhagavan. Our only concern is, who am I here and now? The other analogy, the prey in the jaws of a tiger, uh, well, it's very clear what Bhagavan says in, in Nana, in the 12th paragraph. What he says in the 12th paragraph is, um, God and Guru are in truth not different. Just as what has been caught in the jaws of a tiger will not return, so those who have been caught in the look of Guru's grace will never be forsaken, but will surely be saved by him. Nevertheless, it is necessary to walk unfailingly in accordance with the path that Guru has shown. So, being caught in the jaws of a tiger is analogous to being caught in the look or glance of Guru's grace. What does Bhagavan mean by being caught in the glance of Guru's grace? He's not talking about just the physical look of Guru, because Guru is not, Guru is not a person. Though Guru may appear, in our case, our Guru is Bhagavan Ramana. He appeared in human form, but that human form is not Bhagavan. That, that, he is not limited to that human form. He appeared in that human form in order to tell us the term within. So the look of his grace is not limited to the look of that physical form. Bhagavan is in no way limited to that physical form in which he appeared. So the look of the look of Guru's grace, what he says in Tamil is um Guruvin Aral Parvail, in the in the look of uh, Guru's of the grace of Guru. Um so Bhagavan's grace is not limited to his name and form. His grace is ever present, it's ever present in our heart. So be being caught in the look of his grace means. If we are attracted to this path, if we take him as our, if we are attracted to take him as our guru, then we are like a prey that has been caught in the jaws of a tiger. Once a tiger has caught a prey, it's never going to let go of it. So once you're caught in the jaws of a tiger, you're, you're, um, you're, you're, you can never escape. You're surely going to be eaten by that tiger. Likewise, if we're caught in the glance of Guru's grace, if we've been, if we've fallen under the uh, the magnetic attraction of Guru and the, uh, the path that Guru has shown, we will never be forsaken, but will surely be saved by him. He says it very, very strongly uh, in Tamil. Avaral Rakshika Padavare Andri Orukalum Kaivira Pada. We will we will certainly be uh, saved by him and will never be forsaken. But then he adds, this is very, very important. Eninum Guru Kartya Varipadi Tavaradu Nadika Vendum. That means, nevertheless, it is necessary to walk unfailingly in accordance with the path that Guru has shown. 
because though Guru has caught us in his jaws, like the tiger, the tiger's not going to. The, Guru is such a tiger that he will not swallow us until we are willing to surrender ourselves completely. So, why Bhagavan hasn't swallowed us yet? Because we are not yet willing to surrender ourselves completely to him. So, how do we, how can we surrender ourselves completely to him? Only by following the path that he's shown. As he goes on to say in the next paragraph, he, he defines in the first sentence of the next paragraph, the 13th paragraph, he defines what is self surrender, what it is to give ourselves to God. He says, Anma chintane tabira, vera chintane kalambaritku satram idam kodamal, apmanishta paranai iripade, tanai isanaku alipadam. The main clause of that sentence is, Anmanishta paranai iripade, tanai isanaku alipadam. Anmanishta paran means one who is firmly established as oneself, firmly fixed in oneself. In other words, being, being firmly fixed in our real nature, as we actually are. So being one who is firmly established as oneself, that alone is giving oneself to God. So how can we be firmly established as ourself? How can we be as we actually are? The... The answer is given in the uh, in the adverbial clause that starts the sentence. Anma chintane tavira vera chintane kalambadku satram idam kadamo. That means giving not even the slightest room to the rising of any thought except atma chintana. So, what is the implication <coughs> there? How can we? give no room to the rising of any thought other than Atma Chintana. Atma Chintana literally means thought of oneself, but it implies self-attentiveness. <clears throat> In order to avoid giving room to the rising of any other thought, we need to be so keenly self-attentive, that is, so long as we're, no thought can arise without our attending to it. So if our attention is fixed on ourselves so firmly um, that it, it never wavers away from ourselves, we are thereby giving no room to the rising of any other thought. In other words, what Bhagavan implies in this sentence is, we need to be so keenly self-attentive that we thereby give no room to the rising of any other thought. By being so keenly self-attentive, we are thereby firmly fixed as ourself, and that is giving ourselves to God. Giving ourselves to God means giving ego to God, giving ourselves as ego. Being fixed as ourselves being, means being fixed as we actually are. So this sentence itself it's um, re referring back to an earlier question. Someone asked, uh, referred to people who say that Bhagavan said ego is um, self-investigation is only a concession given by Bhagavan. No, that is very, very clearly, that is the way shown by Bhagavan. And as he says in the previous sentence, the last sentence of the um, previous paragraph, 
Guru Katya Varipari Tabaradu Nadakabendam. It is necessary to walk unfailingly in accordance with the path the Guru has shown. The path that Bhagavan has shown is the path of self-investigation and self-surrender. By turning our attention within, we are not only investigating ourselves, we are also surrendering ourselves. That is the path shown by Guru. And that is absolutely essential. Though he gives the assurance, once we've been caught in the glance of his grace, we will, he will never forsake us and will certainly save us. How, nevertheless, we have to follow his path. Because until we are willing to be swallowed by the tiger, the tiger will not swallow us. Our willingness is necessary. And how, how can we show our willingness? by clinging firmly, so firmly to self-attentiveness, but we give no room to the rising of any other thought. So Bhagavan's grace is doing everything uh, that is necessary to help us. But our cooperation is necessary. We need to yield ourselves to his grace. If we do not yield ourselves to his grace, his grace is never going to force us. His grace is working from within, giving that, us that willingness to surrender ourselves to him. But we have to play our little part by willingly surrendering ourselves to him, by holding on to self-attentiveness. So I hope that adequately answers that question. Of course, following the analogy of the tiger, the tiger doesn't ask us permission, it just goes ahead and gobbles. Yes, but in this case, Bhagavan, is, 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 Bhagavan has given that uh, proviso. He doesn't say that whether you're willing or not, the tiger's going to swallow. He says you have to follow the path. Yeah, yeah. Because the, following the path is the willingness. Bhagavan often used to say, Bhakti is the mother of jnana. Bhakti is that willingness to turn within and surrender ourselves to him. Without that willingness, he's never going to force us. So he is a very gentle tiger. He's caught us firmly, but he's not going to swallow us until we are willing to be swallowed by him. You are always talking about Bhagavan, but for me, you are my Bhagavan, my teacher. You are teaching me, and my question is, can I see you as Bhagavan? Since we are all Bhagavan, since we all are Bhagavan. Yeah. How can you see me as Bhagavan when you don't see you as Bhagavan? Bhagavan didn't say, the Bhagavan didn't even say, see me as Bhagavan. He did, referring to himself. He said, see yourself as Bhagavan. That is, Bhagavan often used to say, what, what is Guru? Guru is not the person who appears outwardly. Guru is that which is shining in your heart as I. So Bhagavan is always shining in our heart as I. If we are not willing to look within, we cannot see Bhagavan outside. So long as we take Bhagavan to be merely a, an, a person outside, we have failed to understand him. The reason he appeared in human form was only to tell us to turn within, to see the, the real Guru who is ever shining in our heart as our own being. So we shouldn't be trying to see others as Bhagavan. We should be trying to see ourselves as Bhagavan. We don't need not even see ourselves as Bhagavan. We all we need to do is to see ourselves as we actually are. Then we will see 
that is seeing ourselves as Bhagavan, because Bhagavan is what we actually are. And regarding seeing me as Bhagavan, that is meaningless, because all I'm doing, I'm just, uh, um, uh, I'm just relaying what Bhagavan has said. I'm not, I'm not saying anything of my own. I'm just uh, repeating again and again what Bhagavan has taught us. Either what he's taught us explicitly or what he's taught us implicitly, because all the answers to all our questions are all there in Bhagavan's own original writings. If not explicitly, implicitly they are there. So I'm simply pointing out what Bhagavan has pointed out. Thank so, you for the answer but anyway, and thank you for teaching. I'm not teaching. I'm just pointing out what Bhagavan is saying. I'm, I'm, my role is, uh, is immaterial. It's Bhagavan. What comes from Bhagavan is what is useful. If what I'm saying is coming from Bhagavan, then it's useful. If it's coming from me, then it's useless. You're the Amazon driver. Yeah. <laughs> Delivering the parcel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, next one. Even in verse 25 and 26 of UN, Bhagavan is clearly saying we need to be self-attentive. The YouTube commentators who said self-inquiry was only a concession should consider checking out UN. This isn't really a question, I think it's just a comment, perhaps. Yes, exactly, but that, that's exactly the case. I mean, not just 20, I mean, I referred to 22 and 27, but 25, I mean, all, Throughout Uludunapadu, throughout Nana, throughout all of Bhagavan's work, he's constantly stressing this. So anyone who thinks, anyone who imagines that self-investigation is just a concession given by Bhagavan has not understood Bhagavan at all. He's not even willing to understand Bhagavan because if they're, I, I know one person who says this, someone who's been living many years in Ramanashram, who someone who is a Tamilian, so is able to read these things in Tamil, still they are saying this. It just shows their lack of willingness to follow the path shown by Bhagavan. Okay, next. Right, so the next one is, I would like to have a chat with Michael. So Michael wants to have a chat with Michael. Okay. Michael? <laughs> um, yeah, so um, obviously I, I, I do take on board the um, core teaching and, and I like what you were saying earlier about limiting our curiosity, you know, to, to the, the path, to the path of self-investigation. So really that's the only, um, that's the only re real question. Everything else is a, a kind of wa waste of time, really. But, um, you know, the, the question of uh, the reality of um, a thunderstorm going on, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the reality of, um, of, of, of the world, the apparent reality of the world, I would have to say that, um, that I, I can't help but respect it as I go around, you know, because it, um, uh, you know, I'm dealing with it the whole time. Basically, it's got a, a structure to it. Like this, um, this table that this computer is on. I actually kind of built it. It's got four legs, and it's, you know, I, I 
can't help but respect that it's um, actually there. And, um, you know, where, when I booked my flight to Tiruvannamalai, I, I can't help but respect that the, 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 the airplane has, has two wings and, and this kind of thing. So, um, so I'm, I'm um, and, and I also, I, I just, I'm, along with, I suppose, other, most other people, I, um, uh, I feel that the, the waking world, what I call the waking world, is somehow the real world compared to the dream world which although it seems completely real while I'm in it, it doesn't, uh, it seems to me that it doesn't have that underlying structure that uh, like the, the solid reality that like I know it's an illusion, but um, the, the, the apparent solid reality of, of my day to day world as I, as I walk around. And um, so I, I um, so really, it's just a subjective thing. And another little thing about uh, the apparent reality, apparent external reality, which of course I'm experiencing um, subjectively, so it's all subjective ultimately. But uh, one thing that I find rather fascinating is color. You know, like um, color, the color blue, I'm looking at something on the computer here, apart as look, the, the color blue is very different from the color red. Like that is really blue as opposed to that is really red like so it it seems to be it seems to have um a reality about it that i that i can't deny you know so so um, i'm just uh, really i'm just uh, not really asking a question in in a way because I, I i accept completely the um the premise of uh bhagavan's teaching and everything but um still sort of um and another aspect of it is that I want other people to really exist and I don't want to be um, to find ultimately there is nothing but the self. I actually feel supported by the, um, the presence of others and uh, like it's really important to me that others kind of like, share my experience. Like I have a subjective experience and it's, it's uh, great when somebody else, when you kind of um, um, you, you kind of resonate with somebody else who has a similar uh, kind of point of view. So, um, uh, so I, I, um, I, I'm sad that for these reasons, I'm just uh, yeah. drawn back into, into this. Uh, uh, at the same time, I can see that the whole thing is subjective. I can see that it, it absolutely requires um, my own existence, my own reality, my own subjective reality. For it to appear, if, it, if if I wasn't, I didn't exist. Um, there would be no no world for myself. But still, there you go. It's um, it's still very very compelling. I would say. Yes, you're you're saying all these things from the perspective of yourself as a person. You see yourself as a person, and so you want other people to exist just like you exist. Other people exist every bit as much as the person you seem to be uh, seems to exist. That is, Michael Ridgway is, Bowen would never say Michael Ridgway is any more real than any other person. So long as you experience yourself as I am Michael, 
Michael seems to you to be real, and therefore every other person seems to you to be equally real. Could I, could so, I just mention something? Could I just yes. say something? Um, can you hear that thunder? Real thunder, yes. This is real thunder. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, um, yes, I, I've forgotten what I was going to say that now. Um, uh, yes, I, I think um, I think the Michael Ridgeway is um, is actually formed. Seems to be formed. The actual ego, of Michael Ridgeway, seems to be formed from you know uh, a, a kind of composite of of other people. You know, I come into this uh, world and I I I, I kind of uh, see myself as one of uh, you know millions of other human beings, and I've kind of based my own identity as I've went through childhood and everything. Um, uh, on my parents and and others and how I react to others so so in a way in a way they they seem to be forming me in a sense or my ego or my sense of myself um, yes but yeah, yeah. so so I can't Ma see that Michael Ridgeway is not ego it's ego not is that which is aware of itself as I am Michael Ridgeway mm -hmm. We need to distinguish the person we seem to, we need to distinguish ego from the person that ego seems to be. So yes, Michael, Michael Ridgway is a, is a construction constructed by all these, seemingly constructed by all these experiences. But the I that is aware of itself as I am Michael Ridgway is what has constructed all these things. The I that is aware of itself as I am Michael Ridgway is what has constructed the parents, the, the siblings, the friends, the surroundings, the school we went to, the job we had, all these things. All these are all a projection of the I that is now aware of itself as I am Michael Ridgway. Michael Ridgway is as much a fabrication as all these other things. The fabricator of all these things is the I that is aware of itself as I am Michael Ridgway. And also regarding structure, from the perspective of this waking state, this waking state has more structure. But in dream generally, dream seems to be a, con a continuation of this waking state. So supposing we were having this conversation in a dream, you would be saying, giving exactly the same arguments you would say, see this state, it's so, it, it has so much structure, when, it, unlike dream. Because I've done this in, in, in dream, when I've, been, I've been, had discussions, when yeah. I was, uh, talking about, oh, um, I, I, this is amazing, I'm having this experience, because normally it's uh, when, only when I'm asleep, and I'm talking to somebody about, you know, like, so you can, obviously, yes, you can actually wake up. You know, apparently, you think you wake up in sleep, that's actually happened to me quite often. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and I haven't the faintest idea. I don't. It just doesn't occur to me for one moment that there is another waking state. I'm completely convinced. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The state. It, it's um that that I'm awake. Yeah, yeah. And I would but, never. I would never. Uh, I would never um uh, be motivated. What I find quite interesting is that I would stay asleep for a thousand years, and it would never once occur uh, occur to me. Oh, it's it's time to get up now. now yeah. Yes, and you know I've just I've yeah. completely lost to it. Yeah, yeah, lost to the sleep. And it's is there another thing to consider? Is there anything in our present state 
that we couldn't experience? Are we experiencing anything now that we couldn't experience in a dream? Um, well, again, there is this sort of predictability, the kind of structure uh, that um, that you can return that uh that there's a sort of reliability you know like if i put my keys down somewhere in the flat and i've lost i i know the keys are there um because i i got into the house using using them so i know objectively that the keys yeah. are there and i can just check it out and i will just keep this person and i will eventually find the keys yes so it, it sort of has um um you know i can i can uh but, but you can equally well experience this in a dream Many, many dreams are just as predictable as this uh, waking state. Yes, you remember you kept your keys in a certain place. Maybe you, I, where did I keep it? Where did, oh, yes, I remember I kept it here. You go there and you find it there. Some dreams are less, um, some dreams are a bit, <clears throat> one thing Bhagavan explained about waking and dream, he, he said, it, how consistent a dream seems to be, how much structure it seems to have, how, how much um, consistency it has, depends upon the extent of uh, attachment to the body. Some dreams, we, 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 uh, it's only, we, it's, it's not a fully blossomed state of ego, so we are, we are we are identified with the body, but not so firmly identified with that body. So we, one moment you may be talking to someone, you may be talking to um, a friend of yours, and suddenly it, you're, it's your father you're talking to, even though, and you remember your father passed away so many years ago, but still it's so real your father there. Like, like that, some dreams are inconsistent, but many dreams we have are internally very consistent. They seem to be just exactly as a continuation of this waking state. Yeah, and I, I think that probably in the waking, the apparent waking state, uh, we, we actually don't remember uh, how clear um, our dreams were. No, we, often we don't, we, often we don't. They were actually clearer than we, we actually imagined. And we often overlook the fact that often in the waking state, waking state can become very dreamlike if you're if you're very tired and trying to keep awake for some reason you're sort of drifting between you're you're sort of halfway between uh waking and dream but the, the world becomes very dreamlike in such a state because you're you you're having difficulty holding on to your identification with this body so you keep on almost slipping into sleep but you're just keeping yourself awake in such, if we reflect on such state, it's clear they're very, very much like a dream state. So the relative consistency, the relative solidity of this waking world depends upon the, the strength of attachment, how, how strongly we are attached to this body. In some dreams, we're more strongly attached. In some dreams, we're less strongly attached. When we're very sleepy, even in this waking state, our attachment to this body becomes less strong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it is all uh, a kind of play of the mind, isn't it? It's all a play of the mind. It's all uh, entirely a play of the mind. Yeah, and um, yeah, even uh, you know, there are quite a lot of science 
scientists now who are just who are saying it's a kind of simulation and that reality as we thought it uh, it, it simply doesn't exist it's just yeah. an appearance sort of thing so um uh, but still it's um um it's uh, it, it's something that is difficult to i mean i, I can't just um kind of ignore my but, my but, re reactions you know but, so. but yeah. this is what but the world will always seem to be real so long as we identify a body as i yes when the identification with the body is dissolved there'll be no world at all as we yes. can see every day when we fall asleep yes yes so do you think we will lose all perception of color i just happen to like beautiful colors um blues and greens are like are they color, color is a part of this world appearance mm -hmm. in in sleep do you have perception of color in sleep well i i suppose i do perhaps not in so sleep oh no, no in, in deep sleep yeah no. in deep okay, sleep right. no in okay. dream we have no, perception no, no, of true. color obviously but no. not in sleep not in deep okay. sleep no 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 um no no color yes and yet, and yet color is very beautiful and very mysterious like blue is um is i mean it is a very totally subjective experience uh, any yeah. scientist will tell you that blue isn't in the outside world yeah, yeah. um it is a very beautiful experience um yeah. you know that's that's mysterious we don't know where it comes from it's yeah very very subjective um everything yeah. is very subjective yeah yeah okay <laughs> well michael if you weren't aware of it you wouldn't see the blue would you uh, no, that's that's true. Yeah. So awareness it's the same awareness. Yeah. 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 So um, so could you could you say that blue is. Um, uh, of course, Brahman, the self doesn't have any aspects. Uh, there are no aspects. It's just the reality. So yeah. there are no compartments. But I'm sort of asking, could blue be a part uh, of um, of the, the self, you know, somehow since it's um since it's uh projected blue is a modification of the mind modification. yeah but blue is a is a is a mental impression yeah all perceptions are mental impressions all thoughts are mental impressions everything we experience is mental pr uh, um, impressions yeah yeah but all these mental impressions appear only when we identify ourselves with one of the objects that uh, are impressed on our mind, in other words, a body. So it's, it's all down to this fundamental error of identifying ourselves as I am this body. Sure. Yeah. And this body has no existence independent of the ego, but it, of, of ourself as ego who identify this body as I. That's why Bhagavan says, grasping form, it comes into existence. That is without, grasping form means, there's not, it's not that there's a body there, but ego rises and grasps. The very rising of ego it's the same as the projection and identification, uh, projection of a body and identification with that body. And then through the five senses of that body, we project all this world. So all, the, as Bhagavan says, 
in verse 26 of Volusion Aptu. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. So all these blue and red and all these colors and all this wonderful phenomena of this universe are all nothing but an expansion of ego. Yeah. An expansion of and ego is ego only so long as it's looking outwards. If it stops looking outward and look back within, there's no such thing as ego at all. That's why Bhagavan says, there he concludes verse 26. He, that after saying, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what it is, is giving up everything. Yes, it's the, it's the, um, it, it, it's, it's the nature of the error. It's the nature of the mistake. It, exactly. That is my, this is Maya. As Bhagavan said, Maya is nothing but ego. Error. Really, really, it's a kind of pretend reality. <laughs> so, yes, yes. so there is the um, there's a reality, and then there's the ego. The ego is telling me I exist. Yes, but it's giving me the wrong, the wrong me, if you like. Yes, this yes. Sense of me, which is e ego is is itself the wrong me. The ego that is, is ego isn't the the me who is being told by ego is itself ego. Yeah. <laughs> yes, right. Well, I mean, I'm just talking yeah. to the ego now, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the ego can be incredibly self-deceptive. <laughs> the very nature of ego is self-deception. Yeah, it's just, it's deception. It's just a lie through and through, isn't it? So yeah, yeah. it's very difficult to, um, uh, it's very difficult to get out of it because it, the, uh, in the attempt to get in getting out of it is, 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 it can so easily be the ego trying to do it. The ego can take on any project, include... That's why Bhagavan content. says, the attempt of ego to, uh, to, um, to, by any sadhana, other than self-investigation, the attempt of ego to destroy itself by any means other than self-investigation, is like a, a, a thief posing as a policeman, pretending to catch the thief. Because all other sadhanas... Wait, wait, Many people fail to understand this analogy, but it's a very important analogy Bhagavan gives of this, um, this thief pretending to be a policeman. When the thief pretends to be a policeman, why? what is the aim of the thief? To divert the t attention away from himself towards someone else. Oh, there he goes, there he goes, come run, let's run and catch him. So he, he pretends to be one of the people who is seeking, trying to catch the thief. Thereby he, he, diverts attention away from himself. That's why Bowman said self-investigation is the only means to get rid of it, because in, in self-investigation, we are questioning the very reality of ego. So we're not allowing the ego to pose as a policeman. Because we, we, by, by posing as a policeman, the ego is attempting to divert our attention away from ourselves. Of course, the ego means we ourselves of the ego. So ego attempts to divert its own attention away from itself by means of other sadhanas. But self-investigation is turning, is, is ego turning its attention back on itself. When it turns its attention back on itself, if it does so 
keenly enough, deeply enough, there's no such thing as ego at all. So if thought, it takes flight, as Bhagavan says. I, I, li I like what you said in a, in a previous um, discussion uh, that uh, the, um, uh, the act of self-attention self is, is really, you feel like you're doing something, but actually what you're really, what's really happening is that you're stopping doing something. Yeah, yeah. So that, that um, I thought that was um, because, you know, if the ego tries to do something, it's just promoting itself. In a yeah, way. yeah, yeah, Whereas, yeah. But this uh, this particular you know approach um, has got something in it that is not it's it's like a stopping yeah uh, process it's got it is in it is in it and um, so in a way you're just stopping uh, stopping the illusion by questioning it you're yeah, yeah. you're kind of exposing it and therefore stopping it yeah. Yeah. The attention going away from ourselves towards anything else, that is an activity. When the attention turns back on ourselves, the activity and the, the doer of the activity subsides, because ego is the doer of the activity. So when, we t when ego turns its attention back on itself, it automatically subsides. And when the doer subsides, the doing also subsides along with it. The trouble is the ego has, uh, uh, gets nothing out of this, really. Yeah, so it's, it's not willing to us. turn within. That's why this seems to be a big struggle. Yes, there is a struggle, yeah. That, that's yeah. It. So we're constantly going no. And, and actually, I think uh, if you're having some success with it, it can get more difficult. It seems like it, it put, put up a stronger battle. Yes. If you're actually making, there is some progress, it'll kind of realize that uh, it's in danger and will actually draw you out even more strongly. Exactly, exactly. People think that if you go deeper, then it gets easier. No, it, no. Gets, it gets more and more difficult because the, the closer you come to, to seeing what you actually are, the more ferociously uh, we fight back. We're not willing to let go until we are willing to surrender ourselves completely. Um, this, this, we will always be. This ego, this, this self-investigation is a struggle within ourselves. As Bhagavan used to say, all spiritual sadhana is nothing but a battle within our own will between the uh, the. Uh, Vishaya Vasanas, the outward going Vasanas, and the Sat Vasana, the love to turn back within. Uh, but, but surely, um, uh, as egos, we, we could never um, surrender uh, to the self. We, we uh, get to the point where the, the, uh, the, um, uh, the self takes over, doesn't that, it? Which, that like, is, it becomes destroyed. The love to surrender ourselves can never come from ego. But the more we yield ourselves to our own reality, the more that we will lose ourselves in that willingness, in that love to be as we actually are. That is why Bhagavan said, grace is the beginning, the middle and the end. Because without grace, we wouldn't even have an inclination to turn within. So it's grace that gives us this liking to try to turn within. And it's grace that keeps us going, keeps us trying again, again, again. And eventually it is grace that will swallow us.
yes, it's uh, it's amazing how it can take that grip can yes. take a you know like even though you you just feel you sort of um, fail over and over again for such long yes. periods, yet somehow there's this returning to this. Yeah, that is what Bhagavan says. Nevertheless, uh, it is necessary to walk unfailingly in accordance with the path that Guru has shown. We just have to keep on trying. That is absolutely essential. And grace will keep on making us uh, try. But we have to cooperate with that grace. But um, now we're, we're running out of time. Were there any more questions? Um, did you have any more questions or should we? No, 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 no. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it could yeah. go on and on in a way. Yes. Just con yes. constantly exploring, but uh, that, yes. that was brilliant. Thank you. Uh, there are a few more like comments than anything else, just sort of comments by other people. Um, now, there, there are a couple of questions, really. One is you've already just touched on it, um, which is very short. How did Ramana define surrender in his own words? Is surrender a continuum? Yes, but surrender is a continuum because the more we, that is by trying to turn within, we are gradually becoming more and more willing to surrender ourselves. And the more willing we are to surrender ourselves, the more we will, we will naturally subside and become more submissive and become more, it's, yeah, so even to surrender ourselves, grace is necessary. That it is grace that gives us this love to surrender ourselves. And the more, the more we try to, to turn within, the more willing we become to surrender ourselves. So it is a it's a process. It's a continuum. Um, I'm sorry, Michael. Could I just uh, pick up in one term that you just used? Uh, I'm 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 sorry, Christopher. I'm not on the list, it, but it's because you mentioned something. Uh, the light sleep state. Let's call it that. You used that term just now while talking with Mike, Michael. Um, in the context of the practice of japa, repetition of the name of God, whatever that name of God is, Ramana Maharshi said something that it really puzzled me. I don't understand it. And it related with this light sleep state that you just mentioned. If I could just say it, it's like the question was, while making japa for an hour or more, I fall into a state like sleep. On waking up, I recollect that my japa has been interrupted, so I try again. And Ramana Maharshi asked, uh, answers this: like sleep, like sleep. That is right. It's it is the natural state. So I could go on, but so when Ramana Maharshi says that uh, like sleep state, there is some kind of awareness it's not exactly like deep sleep where awareness is not there no, or awareness, I that, awareness yeah. is there in sleep we overlook the in the waking state yeah, we we overlook as, the as a jeep, the i overlook it because when you say that uh, i is there in deep sleep i really don't understand what that means it's not my experience I don't understand what that means. But when it's your experience. 
but I'm not there. How can it be my experience? Uh, when you wake up, are you not aware I was asleep? But that is in the future, not in the presence no, of no, when, when it is are, happening. Are you not aware of having been in a state in which you were not aware of anything? Yes. Okay. How can you be aware of having been in that state if you were not aware in that state? Well, that's theory, but it's still... It's not okay. theory. This is very, very important to understand. I know, and I don't understand it. <laughs> this will be, it becomes clearer and clearer. The more we go within, this becomes clearer and clearer. But we supposing supposing sleep were a state in which there was absolutely no awareness, we would not be aware of any gap between consecutive states of waking and dream. So we would be aware of only two states, alternating states of waking and dream. Right. But we are yeah. all clearly aware there is a third state, a state in which they, we're not aware of anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we are aware of having been in a state in which we were not aware of anything. How can we be aware of having been in that state if we were not aware of being in that state when we were in that state? Yeah, but I only see that, or, or I only perceive that in the future, not when it is happening. No, when you, when it's happening, ego is not there, but you are there. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. That's yeah. what's the okay. what's difficult. Yeah. Okay. I just need to keep on practice. There. <laughs> okay. That aside, regarding this uh, passage, I think this is from talks. Uh, this what what yeah I'm getting yes. it from the book that you also collaborated with uh, um, David Gottman, but it must be original from well, from but, from talks or something. Yeah. So, because first, I I dislike it where it arose my interest was because I had also when I'm in these more times of practice failing practice at Mivishara, <laughs> there is seemingly this state that there is not even sense of time and space, but it's different from deep sleep or different from dream. There is some kind of awareness that is present. Okay, just come back to the inquiry. So it's different. It seems to be different from the three states. Yes. So... It seems to be different. It seems okay, to me, so that's the, I mean, the these are all varying <laughs> degrees of subsidence of mind. Sleep yeah, because that's, a that, state that's, of complete subsidence. That's of what mind. I was surprised by what Bhagavan says, yeah, because but, he says that's the natural state, but because I'm used to see it as not that, uh, I guess I get uh, confused about it or something. Okay. Firstly, these things that are recorded, many of the things that are recorded in talks are mm. not accurately recorded. Okay. So we don't know exactly what the question was or exactly what Bhagavan said, re reply was. This is what the recorder of that, what he understood. Okay. But what Bhagavan actually meant, and also many of the things that Bhagavan says in answer to questions are not his deepest teachings. It's not a part teaching. He, yeah. he, the very fact that that person is doing Japa and is asking questions about Japa, mm -hmm. Bhagavan is giving an answer that is suitable 
suited to the understanding of that person. I that understand person, that because if that also person was he, inclined yeah. to do self-investigation, they wouldn't be asking questions about Japa. Okay. Yeah. So it's I I think it's better not to try and break our head. I mean, we can speculate what mm -hmm. that person may have meant, what Bhagavan may have meant, but it's not clear from what is written there. Yeah, what okay. what is Bhagavan is actually saying. So I Suggest so regardless, to... regardless of it is like sleep, it's just as good or as bad as dream or waking state. You just need to keep on going with the practice to be clear what what it is. That okay. is all okay. that okay. is necessary. Okay. I'm sorry. Is, what yeah. is the practice is very clear. We have to yeah. turn our attention back to ourselves. That is and what we have to continue doing and forget everything else. It's the part of the holding of the eye thoughts, it's also a little bit difficult, but, but it's the core of the practice. Uh, it seems difficult because of our lack of willingness to turn within. Yeah. Bhagavan has said, actually, this is the easiest of all. And it is easy. Nothing can be easier than attending to ourselves. It seems difficult because we are unwilling to do so. An I'm analogy I sometimes so. give, if you've got a very sharp knife and a watermelon, you can easily cut the watermelon with the sharp knife. Even though the watermelon has a hard exterior, your sharp knife is able to cut it. Which is the mind sharp. With, the, with, the that, sharp with, that, if, with the sharp knife, you're able to cut that hard-shelled watermelon. Isn't it easier to cut your throat with that same sharp knife? Yeah. Yes, obviously it's easier because the throat is relatively soft compared to a watermelon. Mm -hmm. But though it's very easy to cut your knife, your, your throat with that knife, are you able to do so? It seems very difficult. Why? Because you're not willing to cut your own throat. Because you know, if you cut your own throat, that's that's the end. The body will will die. And because of our attachment to the body, we're not willing to do that. So the mind is harder than the uh, the thought. I mean, than the act, action of cutting the soft throat. The mind is what is hard. The mind is hard. No, it's our lack of willingness that is hard. It's that lack yeah. of willingness that makes it seem hard. So exactly the same with self-investigation. Attending to ourselves is extremely easy. We, it seems to us to be difficult because we're not willing to, to, to turn our attention to ourselves keenly enough. Because if we turn our attention to ourselves keenly enough, that is literally cutting our throat it's cutting the but throat the, of ego. The, the practice says sharpening the mind on the stone called mind mind is a hard thing i mean yeah, it's yeah, because yeah, our but, tendency but but that that we're mixing up metaphors here Let, let's not mix okay. up the metaphors <laughs> the, the point the point i'm trying to make is attending to ourselves is extremely easy it seems difficult because we don't want to do so. Cutting your throat with a sharp knife is extremely easy. It seems difficult because we don't want to do so. That, that is, that is the, the analogy I'm using here. So attending to ourselves is never difficult. It seems difficult because of our lack of willingness. And we are sure that when it is there, it's because of grace. 
that's where it yes, yes, yeah, yes. that's a, where devotion gets built to attend up. to yeah. ourselves any liking to attend to ourselves is great it's it's not because of grace it is grace itself so that's grace where we can remove that's where we can remove ego from that uh, part of the practice let's say like that because if it's coming it's not because of my yes, willing but, because but my through, willingness will be always ego but but grace needs to work yeah but by the will of the ego it would never happen because it wants to preserve itself yeah yeah okay thank you i'm sorry by for the, the interruption yeah. by the will that is natural to ego it won't happen because the natural the nature of ego is to go outwards the nature of ego is to to have likes and dislikes and desires and attachments and so on so it's contrary to the nature of ego but it's our own real nature that love to know and to be what we actually are is our own real nature but it's connected with the feature from the ego which is pramada which is to forget about yes. its own nature this is why we have the by turning our attention within we are yielding ourselves to grace we are surrendering ourselves to grace no. Chris, are there any more questions? No, yeah. there's just a few comments which people can read for themselves in the chat. There's no specific question as such. Okay. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya.